Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. You can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com, and I love hearing from you, so you can write me at jeff at dailyevolver.com or go to the Connect section on the Daily Evolver website. All right. So my guest today is Jeremy Johnson, who is back after a two-year absence for another visit. And the simplest thing I think I can say by way of introduction about you, Jeremy, is that you're one of my favorite integral philosophers. Wow. Yeah, yeah, man. I've gotten a great transmission from you. And, um, and just to sort of situate you in the landscape, you focus on Gene Gebser, one of the, you know, great integral philosophers of the past, I guess, what, 1905 to the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. You have written a book about him called Seeing Through the World, Gene Gebser and Integral Consciousness. And you are still the president of the Gene Gebser Society? I still am, yeah. Wow. <laughs> You're doing a new course called Seeing Through the World, Integral Consciousness and the Ever-Present Origin. So just give us an update about where you're at and what you're doing with this course. Sure, Jeff. And I just want to say thanks for having me back on the show and, and for your kind words. It means a lot to me. Uh, as a longtime listener, uh, growing up listening to your show in a sense for the past 10 years. And Oh, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, fill us in in the meantime. All right. Yeah. So so uh, since we've spoken last, I ended up publishing that book that you mentioned and running the kind of test pilot course of seeing through the world. And that was last year, last January, February. Um, and it's coming back again this year, the course, but it's a little bit more curated. So the last year, what I did, like, like the graduate student thinker that I am, I made everybody read through the book linearly, you know, from beginning to end. And I, I think I lost some folks along the way, this kind of getting lost in the reads, because um, I think, as I mentioned in the last interview, uh, Gebser is, is a very challenging uh, writer, but because of that, he can be very transformative. So in this course, we're going to be curating select chapters that really kind of highlight some of his core themes and his core philosophy to really kind of draw that out and explore it. And there's also going to be work in um, a few different practice modules to do together as a group um, and a few different contemplative practices that I've been exploring since since that time to just kind of find ways to get out of the head and a little bit more into into presence, right? Because so much of uh, integral philosophy in Gepser's expression is is a matter of presence and leaning into presence and allowing presence to kind of open up our deep sense of past and intimately, right? Like we were talking about the presence of the future, and that happens here. And you need to be kind of very. Um, open and grounded and in a sense embodied for that. So we're going to be exploring what that could mean. Um, and as we go along through Gebser's book too, there's going to be some multimedia presentations just to help people along because there's so many name drops, uh, uh, art references, you know, classic paintings or ancient paleolithic yeah. masks or, you know, there's just so much rich material that he's drawing from that I think as a modern reader, it'd be really good to kind of get a sense of that visually. Well, um, it's, it's so interesting to hear, uh, to sort of place him in the integral pantheon in, in a way. Uh, first of all, he's living through this amazing period in history. 
you know, through fascism and the world wars and, all, you know, the, and then also he knows Picasso, he knows all of these physicists and great thinkers. So he's in the modern age. He lives through to the 70s. You know, he lives through the 60s. And then um, there's also the fact that he's a mystic. He's a true um, spiritual adept and transmits that in a way that is more poetic and artistic than most integral philosophers, right? Mm -hmm. So in a way, uh, he's calling us to an, a, a path, right? Or, or, or offering his insight uh, as something to practice. Mm -hmm. not just sort of think about or right, something right. like that. Well, I think, I think, and I've been talking about this with other scholars in the past year, including Mark Vernon, who's a fantastic thinker, um, who wrote about our Owen Barfield. And I like Barfield's example of this, and it dovetails in what Gebser is doing, because Barfield says, if you look at language, um, and you look at the ancient expressions of the, of the English language, it was doing something different. It had a different way of being in the world than let's say modern colloquial language does. There's a different relationship to time, to space, to symbols and spirit, numinosity, than say a secular person in everyday life would be having, not let alone a philosopher. So Gebser kind of takes a similar approach where he goes, you know, the, 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 the archeology, span the layers of symbols and language and myth and art, and even thinking itself is part of this kind of processual transformation. And the way you kind of get into that and really sink into that as sort of a living thing is not just to see it in a kind of abstract way, like, all right, let's take the thousand mile view and look down at where we've come from. But in a certain sense, he's kind of saying like, you can kind of walk along the path, you can go down into the valley, there's a part of you that's still in the valley, right? So in, in a sense, and I've, I've been using this word loosely, because um, you know, the, the, a lot of like progressive folks talk about uh, decolonization. And in some sense, he's really kind of asking us to do that. Like the process of becoming modern is something we should be aware of, right? There's, this is a cultural evolution process. And the more we're aware of that, the more actually we can access these older structures of consciousness in a very embodied way. Um, and and the, again, the way to do that is to really kind of get into the poetic, the aesthetic, the, the experience in our own phenomenology in, in phenomenology is like the, the study of what it feels like to be right what, what is perception how do we engage with time how, how do we feel like what it is to be in the world that's transformed yeah and so he's always like and the funny thing is he wasn't like very aware of because it was the 40s and the 50s he wasn't very steeped in contemplative eastern traditions and yet throughout his writing he's always kind of talking in that way he's always I kind know. of going you have to like, he's always checking us as moderns. He's like, all right, you may want to write off the mythic structure, for instance, as superstition or the magical, but hold your horses and don't go in there with, okay, is this scientifically measurable? Uh, leave some space for a moment. I'm not saying like go and believe, but leave an opening, leave a clearing to, to perhaps experience some of this for yourself. And so in that way, it, it really kind of brings that to life without this sort of prejudice of being, too far up into the right. center, into the yeah. mock. Um, and this is what you are attempting to do with this course, right? Exactly. So describe how you'll do this. I mean, Gebser's famous, of course, for coming up with these structures of consciousness of archaic and magic, mythic, mental, right? Yes, and then mental. integral. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and 
So to have a palpable transmissive experience of these is your goal. Mm-hmm. And you're doing multimedia and you're doing meditations. I love that you're doing, you know, practices. Uh, so give us a sense of how that will work. So uh, you mentioned the multimedia thing, and I think especially with um, the magic and the mythic, right? So um, folks can reference our last recording, but the magical and the mythic, it's a very kind of experiential thing. You know, you kind of have to just sort of aesthetically engage with a feeling in a felt sense. So we're going to be working with um, playing some different kinds of music, um, emphasizing sound and acoustics. Uh, the good thing about the structures and what Gepser lays out for us is that very often um, a structure of consciousness is related to um, what McLuhan calls our sense ratio. So the, the, the magical is sort of acoustic oriented. And so we're going to be emphasizing hearing and emphasizing the, uh, what it is to hear. How do we process a room if we're just emphasizing hearing rather than sight, right, rather than visually? But then what happens if we emphasize the kind of the inner eye, the dream eye, the image eye, right, um, versus the outer measurable eye of kind of seeing during the waking world? So we're going to be really focusing on our senses and our embodiment. And then as we go through some of these practices, one of the things I, I did actually at the Hispano-American conference streamed in for that one uh, last year was, um, so one of the important examples Gepser gives of the, of the unperspectival magic and mythical world is the cave. And so we did a little bit of a visual exercise, imagining ourselves in a cave and allowing ourselves through a few minutes of just contemplative presence and inner visualization to begin to kind of feel out into the cave, to begin to feel like, well, well what is coming to you? What do you hear? Focus on what you hear. Are there voices? Are there footsteps? Um, can you reach out and touch the, the the cave walls? I used an image of um, a a South American cave with like all of these beautiful hands painted in red ochre all over the wall. And I just had people look at that for a moment, close their eyes, kind of go in there, and really kind of sink into these visual images and allow them to kind of become multisensory. So there'll be a lot of that, um, and I'm working on a few different presencing techniques, just sort of very simple, like coming to be present with the group, right? Before we begin jumping in to the heady stuff or to the reading questions, just to have a few minutes of contemplative practice and sort of cultivating that sense of, um, you know, uh, one of my favorite teachers is named Shinzen Young. Uh, the sense of equanimity, right, is something that is so useful and so helpful to be cultivated when you mm-hmm. read Gemster and when you explore these questions. Because sometimes weird stuff comes up, right? With the mythic, um, with the unconscious, right? With the dream imagery. That could be really powerful stuff to work with that. And so uh, rather than saying, let's be rational and kind of uh, uh, put a capstone and say, oh, well, the mental can help us with that because it keeps us rational and buoyant above the, the waters of the mythic. Um, rather than that, I'm, I'm emphasizing uh, a kind of clarity and equanimity that can allow us to really allow those older structures to, to speak for themselves mm-hmm. rather than be interpreted. Uh, one of the things that I love about Gebser is, and you, I know you emphasize it, is this word diaphanous, right? Mm-hmm. There's this, uh, just in any given moment, seeing through what it is to include, you know, these other dimensions of reality that are still online. And not only are they, are they online, but there's also future structures online. 
And that's where I still get kind of stuck. Well, yeah, I mean, there. The, the principle of, of diaphony or diaphaneity, it's, it sounds more complicated than it really is because I, this is just me after a few years of really uh, writing about this and trying to articulate it and working with students on it. Um, I think the more we're capable of, again, concretizing as a Gepsarian word, kind of rendering embodied, rendering kind of realized in ourselves, the more we can work with the different structures outside of the mental, let's say the, the deep past, the magic and the mythic, um, and the more we're aware of the mental is also this, this phenomenological structure, that we embody it in a certain way. The more we work with those things, we, we start to get a little bit more fluidic, a little bit more dynamic. You know, you kind of begin to see how these different structures move throughout the day, how they kind of come to the forefront. Um, you know, if you're early morning, you're waking up and, and you hear your pet kind of, I don't know, eating some food at like six in the morning and you're kind of in a dream state, but you're kind of just disembodied and floating through the whole house. Like, mm. and then you slip into wakefulness and you forget about that. Like you can kind of see these little transitions as they take place. And then let alone some of the deeper, more difficult work, like shadow work and, and, and Jungian kind of work with the mythic. Um, the more you work with those things, I don't know, there's, there's more of this kind of opening. It's a sort of a natural relaxing that sort of takes place in you after a while. And I always say this, I was mentioning this to Corey too. Um, we talk about in integral theory, you talk about aqua, right? All quadrants, uh, in, the, the in, interior, exterior, upper left, lower, lower right. Um, diaphaneity is almost like the kind of the point in the middle. It's like, what is it, what is it really like to, to be naturally, as, as they say in integral theory, tetra arising, just to be. Um, it's just a kind of poise, right? It, it's like being the open sky. It's like not necessarily um, shutting down the magic, not shutting down the mental either. It's just being open. It's a kind of a simple openness that is, is a kind of a natural poise. It's innate to us. And I think the more we work on it, the more we can kind of cultivate that natural disposition. Um, and that's the, that's the key with, with Gepser too, is that all of these structures um, are, are latent from, from the beginning, quote unquote, from the archaic, the magic, the mythic, the mental, the integral even, they're all in us as like a seed, as a kind of a presence. And they draw us forward in that sense too. Um, I don't know if that, if that helps a little bit with this sort of, it's a feeling, it's an openness. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. an image of an open sky. Oh, like totally. No, I, yeah, no, it, and, it's, and it's quite beautiful. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the earliest uh, inspirations for Gepser in the 1930s when he was in Malaga, Spain, which I think I mentioned in the last interview, but it's worth mentioning again. Um, he had this, this lightning-like flash of inspiration. And he was studying Rilke's poetry. That's how he started out, as a poet and a poetic scholar of sorts. Um, and he was just so taken by Rilke's muse of Malaga, Spain. And he, he comments in his diary about the shimmering emptiness of the open sky. And then that's sort of his first inkling of this, this new attitude that he felt was opening up in the arts and the sciences. Mm. Um, and and, and what, what year was this? 1932 into well, 1933. Wow. Um, some dark uh, decades to come there. Yes, yes, it was. And that's the thing. I mean, we talked about that last time, but he lived through Hitler's Germany. He escaped there. He eventually had to flee Spain and was nearly uh, executed at the border. You know, he was arrested. 
uh, nearly shot. So, so he lived through some of the most difficult times in, in the history of European civilization. And yet even there, like he, he saw the, the creative tensions that were possible uh, emerging from that dissolution. Um, and, and very much, you know, like I mentioned, art is very often the early harbinger of, of what is emerging. Art can kind of tell us because it's sort of spontaneously arising in a culture. Um, so you should always look to the artist as this sort of organic expression of what is what is coming, what is becoming in human culture. And, and, and it's working out those dynamics. It's working out those tensions. Um, so that's why he was so drawn to poetry and, and how Rilke's language was using adjectives differently. And it wasn't about subject and object anymore. It was this kind of betweenness and openness of things that he got so well from Rilke. And that principle, he, he, he applied to everything else, you know, as a kind of methodology. Um, he called it cultural philosophy. And it was just um, looking for these certain characteristics and criteria that he gleaned from the arts and then began to look at them in, in let's say, physics, Heisenberg, and quantum mechanics, and, mm. and so on. And again, you know, there's something that has fundamentally shifted about um, this century in modernity. They're, they're, we're doing something else that isn't modernity anymore. Like modernity is birthing this new world. Mm. Um, Did he get into post-modernity as a structure? No, I, and you know, I, I talk about this a lot with with folks too because he died in the in the early seventies. Um, so I, I don't really think he was really um, uh, uh, there for the major wave of nineteen seventies right. literature and nineteen eighties postmodern literature. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I, he talks a lot about how um, between these structures, there's a kind of a Janus face quality where where the new structure is kind of expressing itself. Um, but at the same time, the old structure is still online. There's these weird kind of admixtures of the two happening. And when I hear about, like, when you look at the, the the criteria of what it means to be postmodern, right? It's uh, doubting um, meta narratives and big picture thinking. It's it's utilizing skepticism. It's being aware of power structures. There's a very deconstructive element to it. It's 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 cutting things apart. Um, I think Gebser would see that actually rather than something entirely new um, uh, as a further extension or expression of the mental world, of the perspectival mental mm -hmm. world. And the mental um, it is really good at making the cut. It's really good about dividing the subject and the object, standing mm -hmm. in, in yeah. spatial awareness and, and cutting out something through a point of view. And it's that making the cut that he's always talking about. And he warns, interestingly, he kind of anticipated postmodernism because he said, you know, if this tr trend continues, we'll probably end up seeing more cultural fragmentation where everyone will have their own little totalizing worldview and no one will be able to speak to anyone anymore. It'll just be utter fragmentation, just atomization of culture. Um, and he saw that in his own time at beginning just hyper-specialized uh, tra traditions and areas of study and, of course, the, the world wars. Um, so he really felt like that was more of an expression of this kind of same, same extended um, uh, capacity to make the cut, to divide. Yeah. yeah. Um, so well, you, you talk about, I, mean, I don't know if it's your word or his, but that one of the qualities of the modern consciousness is a crystallization is that a word you use, or that there's a well uh, of, of time and space? Yes, um, I use crystallization kind of 
poetically, but Gebser uses it here and there um, in his writing. And by that, I just sort of mean um, there's a particular orientation, like the mental, for instance, is, is that kind of spatialized consciousness of being a body with a perceiver in three-dimensional space. And that could be really great because suddenly you feel more individuated. Suddenly, you know, it's, it's yeah. about your, you moving your will through space. And that could be a powerful thing, right? Moving away from the kind of magical and mythical participation, which is a little bit less individuated and a little bit more about group participation. That's one of the things we talk about when we go into the magical acoustics. Um, when you emphasize sound, everything is kind of echoing and bouncing off one another. It's a kind of a reverberating whole, right? That's enclosed in an, in a, an acoustic space or a, a web of acoustic sounds. Let's say if, if you're in you know natural environment, so there's an interlinking in that. The mental breaks us out of that, right? It, it says, "I stand alone. I stand apart, and I can measure and divide and extend my will into the world." Um, so I forgot where I was going with that, but that's sort well, of well, it, it sort of brings out a th the words, the world's a third person. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. oh, I see it's an it, and, it and, exactly. and I'm not embedded in it yet. So, so, so all cool. So then there's that the integral stage. How do you use this in terms of seeing cultural evolution oh, today? Yes, politics, culture. Mm -hmm. Well, I have I have a, a multi layered response to that. Um, in the end of my book, I talk about a few more contemporary examples of how this plays out. But in many ways, you know, just the low hanging fruit is is the problem of cultural fragmentation and the culture wars we're dealing with right now. Um, in many ways, it's exacerbated by new media and social media, the internet, which was supposed to be, you know, if you're following all of it in the 90s with the dot-com bubble and, and everything else, there was a kind of a utopianism in, in how um, the internet was going to change everything. Um, but if, if we really take to heart a lot of what Gepser is talking about with this sort of emergence of new structures, um, technologies are very often expressions of the structure of consciousness. So what we see with the internet, for instance, or digital culture is this kind of amazing explosion of interconnectivity, uh, nonlinearity, and the, the theories of networks, which sounds very, very kind of emergent. But then many times, you know, a lot of these technologies are used to, to isolate, to segment people, to create a kind of little totalizing bubble where it's no longer a nation state with its own worldview or a particular um, you know, national community or, or, or ethnic community, but now it's the individual. You can curate, you can believe the world is flat if you want. So there's a kind of way that if you run the perspectival world to its extremes, it kind of starts to cut itself down, you know, making that cut and creating your own totalizing worldview where you can have the, the, the perspectival ground of, of objective reality, the it. Well, if everybody can create their own it now with this capacity, now, everybody's going to be doing that. So we have the flat earthers, we have the climate science, um, complete deniers, uh, you know, all sorts of interesting worldviews that can arise through this process of cultural fragmentation. And, and for Gebser, if he was looking at our issues today, I think he would go, oh, well, that, that's the same thing that is, that's at work, as was in my time, this hypercultural fragmentation that's only gotten even exponentially worse. Um, but for me, it's sort of like the... the they write, they write about this too, like the, the post-truth world today. Um, a number of uh, scholars have talked about the kind of um, flimsiness of, of having uh, a ground to stand on together anymore. You know, there's this loss of ground. And for Gebser, he would probably say that that is the perspectival 
um, uh, outermost existential crisis that's run itself out of its own reality. There's no more um, totalizing, perspectival, measurable place that we can commonly share. It's just fragmented into infinity. Um, so I would say like that, that issue that we deal with today, low-hanging fruit, easiest thing to think of is an expression of this perspectival deficiency, as you would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so where do we go from here? <laughs> do you think? Well, um, that's a great question too. I, I think part of this is, is finding actually ways to, um, I think a lot of the progressive movements and c- progressive theorists are on the right track with this in the sense of coming back down to earth, finding a new shared reality. And it's obviously going to be from many different worldviews, but with the, the climate crisis as it is today, uh, we're going to have to learn how to eat together and grow things together, you know, with the Trumpers and with the, you know, ethno-nationalists and with the progressives. So we're seeing a massive shakeup. And Bruno Latour calls this, um, he's a contemporary uh, social philosopher. Um, he, he has a book called Down to Earth. And he says, we need to orient ourselves back down to the terrestrial. The trajectory of modernity is this kind of globalized, um, totalizing worldview is, is, is coming undone. And so I think a lot of thinkers are actually kind of talking about what Gepser anticipated in, in, in the 40s, which is just, it's overwhelming to think about that he was kind of intuiting so many of these issues. So there's a lot of, there's a coming down, there's an emphasis on the lived worlds and lived realities that people are engaging in. And there's also all of these profound challenges we're dealing with, with post-capitalist futures and decentralized economics and like all these things are really experimental right now. But I see us leaning into this direction, um, leaning into the kind of a more imminent oriented culture that has to deal with a lot of these problems, the, the trajectory of modernity. Um, and, and maybe that's another issue that Gebser talks about that's important. Uh, and it's time. We haven't really gotten into that too much. But um, he, says, he sees the whole issue with modernity um, in, in a different light than other postmodern thinkers who, who critique modernity quite a bit and say like, you know, we're, uh, there's all these ambiguities that come about with modernization, et cetera. Instead of, Gepster, instead of doing that, he kind of goes, well, the issue is with modernity is we are trying to master the forces of time uh, through an earlier form of, uh, earlier structure of consciousness through the spatial structure. But he says clock time is not time in its wholeness. Time is this more interdependent thing. Time is more, as we've been saying, the living past of the magic and the mythic, these different life worlds. Um, so the structure of thinking of modernity, of spatially organizing um, and spatializing and systematizing things in a kind of a totalizing view, and then moving in a certain trajectory, let's say incremental, incrementally better, or going in a certain way, all of those things are not efficient enough. They're not up to the task of creating an integral world. And so there's this kind of crisis that happens. Um, The machine, for instance, is this phenomenon that he talks about, the invention of the steam engine, as a symptom of time eruption. It's kind of like modernity beginning to kind of go, well, all right, we've mastered space. We've mastered the three-dimensional world. We're, We're subjects and there are objects. There's now it. And now we just need to learn how to master that and manipulate the world to improve it or go the way we want it to go. Well, the world kind of pushes back. And a lot of ecological thinkers talk about this too, like uh, Gregory Bateson. Thinking in terms of systems and networks is very different than the styles of thinking that we've inherited since the Renaissance. So that's sort of where the crisis comes in. 
Um, and then in terms of speed, I think we all kind of feel this way, especially those of us who are um, emphasizing the, 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 the anxiety around not being able to slow down industrialization. It's a sense of, whoa, we've gone too fast and too far, and now we can't even slow down. This, this machine is just gunning forward. Um, and we've tried to put on some brakes, but there's a sense that we can't do that. And for Gepser, he would, he would say, and he felt this in his own time, this, this onrush of history, this onrush of forward time um, is part of the symptom of our failure to master time through this new integral structure. Um, long answer for, for that question, but these are some of the issues we're still dealing with today with the economic and ecological crisis. Um, and so I'm writing about this quite a bit in my, in my next book. It's called, I think you'll like the title, uh, Fragments of an Integral Futurism. <laughs> um, mm. But it's, it's, it's a play off of futurism, which is traditionally very modernist, you know, um, the arrow of time going forward into progress and the excitement of that. Um, I'm introducing this sort of more uh, aperspectival integral version of time where the past, present, and future kind of mingle with each other, almost like a dynamic organism, right? They're co-informing one another. And so what if we took a look at history and we took a look at potential futures in that way? What would we have to learn from the past? Then how would we be able to, in a sense, move, move forward um, without some of the deficiencies of the mental structure that are kind of holding us back that mm -hmm. we haven't clarified yet? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, <laughs> long yeah. answer. Well, how, how might that work in uh, the contemporary culture where there is a reintegration of the magic and mythic, mm -hmm. at, at the least, uh, into the mental, and 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 this in some ways is begins to be the definition of integral, mm -hmm. of of that integral stage, right, where we have access to all of those, without one dimming or colonizing the other. That's that's the difficulty. That's the important work to do, um, and that's where diaphaneity comes in because. Um, it's not something that we can design. It's almost like a new attitude that in the most subjective sense has to be realized in each one of us. Um, and that takes a lot of work. But I do think um, for starters, it would be, and, and we're already beginning to see this with the decolonization movement, especially in, in Western cultures, is a deep appreciation for um, animistic and indigenous societies that are still very much alive today. Yep. Um, and there's a kind of a shining forth of their wisdom and uh, in some sense a rehabilitation of their worldview in ours as if, you know, we, 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 we've lost certain capacities that they're teaching us to come back online with. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, politically decolonization is, is, is wonderful, but then also there's a spiritual capacity that many, many people in our culture are learning from indigenous life ways. And yeah. I mean, you, you could look at other symptoms and traits like, you know, the rise of interest in magical practices. And mm -hmm. um, I, I actually, it'd be good to read to you this little passage from Gepser, because I think this, this sort of sums up um, where do we begin, you know, in the modern day? How do we, how do we orient ourselves in the daily life? And he says, um, the courage to accept along with the mental time concept, like time is a direction, right? the efficacy of the pre-rational magic timelessness and the irrational mythical temporicity, the rhythms, right? The cycles of the seasons of the cosmos. 
And he's saying the courage to accept those things. Like, what does it mean to really accept it? It doesn't, it's not intellectually, it's, it's something deeper. It requires courage. Um, and then he continues. So the courage to accept those things, it's timeless in the irrational mythical temporicity. And this makes possible the leap into irrational time freedom. This is not a freedom from previous time forms, since they are co-constituents of every one of us. It is to begin with the freedom for all time forms. So, oh my goodness, this this is where we start. You know, as he's saying, it's 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 developing this capacity of, of courage to really work on that in ourselves and to reach. Yeah, the, I, I love the. Courage is sort of an unlikely description of what we need, but it's true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because it does uh, challenge our ego, just to use the basic psychological yeah. terminology. You know, yeah. we think we're here and you're there and that's over there. And and that's how we build our lives. And, you know, God bless us. There's a lot to be said for that. Mm-hmm. But it's not the only thing. By any means. No, no. And, and that's the beautiful thing I think about his transmission spiritually is this, is this um, he calls it primal, tr- primal trust. Mm. And, and it, that goes along with a sense of courage, the courage to say yes to the strange, murky, you know, histories of, of the magic and the mythic. It takes a lot to really say yes to that. But then it also takes a lot to say yes to the present. And then yes to tomorrow, that we are beings in the process of becoming. Mm-hmm. Yes to that whole process and be mm-hmm. present with it. Um, that, Gepser is saying, you know, it, it's in us, that the yes is in us, right? The yes to all that is in us. And that takes courage to kind of make that leap um, and open up to those things in a way that isn't just regression, that isn't just resting uh, on our loyals and, and just accepting the modern world with our modern biases. It's it's to accept the process of transformation as our disposition, right? As our as our being and our becoming. Mm-hmm. It's a, so, it's a, well, I know is- you know. For me, I, I think of myself as an evolving being. So there is a next Jeff that is inevitably going to come online. I don't think it's inevitably in what way, but. Uh, but I can actually just knowing that first of all is a big thing uh-huh. to just feel that upward updraft myself and feel sort of this calling and to feel what however that relates to the rest of the world and to just be curious about it and see it as a koan you know that kind of thing is I think powerful I, and, and and a really uh, uh, sort of a pillar of good spiritual practice, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, especially evolutionary spiritual practice. Yeah, I think uh, there's. It's just a simple poise, right? It's 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 an openness to things. Um, but but specifically when it comes to the integral structure, um, there are certain things that are that are a little bit more concrete that we can explore oh, cool. and talk about, right? So. Yay. Um, what we're experiencing them actually as, as as moderns in this sense because of what we're undergoing right now with this social crisis. We're experiencing them more negatively. Uh, one is we don't have ground anymore, right? There is we, that post-truth world, a feeling of kind of what's up and what's down. Um, it's not just a regression. It's not just a loss of the perspectival world. There is something more complex that is that is trying to express itself in that lesson, in that crisis. 
And this is what I always talk about, that the, the crisis that we talk about in the Anthropocene with climate change, um, some in the integral circles are calling it the meta crisis because it's all of these different factors all kind of compounded. Um, the meta crisis is actually also a, an expression of wholeness in the same way. And some of the characteristics of the Anthropocene that many scholars talk about, the, the subject and object melting down, the human and the non-human worlds colliding, um, suddenly coming to face the hundreds and hundreds of years of industrialization kind of thrown back out at us with CO2 levels and climate change. Um, we're being thrust into a new kind of extended sense of time and complexity in which we're kind of enmeshed in as everyday people. There's a sense of the macro and the micro just kind of wrapped up in one another. And this can be very anxiety inducing if we, if we don't have a sense of how to navigate that. But What's useful in Gepser is that he kind of brings us into uh, um, a, a positive expression of those things. Like, well, what if we did embrace the post-truth world? You know, um, it's funny. Tim what Morton, choice do we have? <laughs> we, we, we should. Uh, Tim Morton has this phrase. Uh, he's an eco-philosopher. He says, like, well, how do you know what's fake news and what's not? And he says, like, fake news will look deliberately very factual. Real news has a little bit of ambiguities. It's like a little liminal. It's yeah, like, well, go. there's a few factors here. There's a few factors there. We think it's this. The more it's kind of in that in-betweenness, the more real it is, the more kind of ontologically true it is, right? There's, this is the new integral ontology that we're leaning into, this betweenness of things, the openness of things. Um, and wherever we can find that manifesting in culture, we really need to, to, to emphasize it and bring it out more. Um, some more examples I, I, I've been doing with my uh, working through with my students is is um, reading a lot of ecological literature, but fiction, not not the science stuff, but the the, the fiction stuff that's inspired by it. So I've been telling people to read Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation or, or Born, um, and in these books, as a kind of a spiritual exercise, there's ways in which the self is reconstituting and becoming more ecological, more distributed. And I think wherever we can kind of loosen this egoic rigidity um, and open up into the non-human without losing all the achievements of modernity, the more we're going to have a clearer sense of what is emerging and what the, the future person will be, you know, yeah. more distributed, more ecological, more diaphanous in yeah. that sense. Yes, um, of course, yes, yes, so yes. There's, there's plenty of other examples like that, but but I think, you know, that is a really good one, just, just yeah. going through and working. Well, I love that. It, it helps me because I often think about where, where are we going? Not just <laughs> me, but all of us. And um, that's a nice picture that yeah. you just laid out there of it's going to be radical, like it has yeah. always been. These stages are radical. Yeah, I mean, if we think about what happened with the Renaissance and modernity and the scientific revolution and just the, Lord. The, the catapulting into globalization over the past 500 years has just been like a roller coaster ride, temporally speaking. It happened so fast yes. and the, the changes have been so radical. Um, we can imagine that whatever is even more intense than that is going to transform things an even deeper, profound capacity. Um, and, and, the, and the idea here, though, is um, it's not just a forward direct direction anymore. That was great for modernity. That was great to get us to globalization. But I think we have to think differently about planetization. Mm -hmm. um, think more in terms of complexity. Think more in terms of networks. Think more in terms of nonlinearity, resuscitating yeah. the 
pre-modern, right? Absolutely. Integrating it, um, and decolonizing those kinds of things, yep. experimenting with just better economic and social. How, yes, how, how exciting um, is that? It's, it's, it's wondrous and it's also, it's, it's like the edge of a knife, like in Lord of the Rings, right? Like <laughs> we are, the, the potential here is tremendous and it's equal to the danger. And that just seems to be the way evolution works itself out. Um, crisis and opportunity, Gepser talks so much about that, that within the dissolution is the solution. It's mm. very fun with wordplay uh, sometimes. Um, and so if we can kind of ride that edge and, and find our way through, I mean, you know, that, that's what we have to do. You know, that's our yeah. task. Yeah. You mentioned like uh, talking about uh, the twofold task. And um, for, for Gebster, it was to, to have that courage of, the, of, of um, concretizing the magic and the mythic and then the courage to begin to articulate new forms of thinking, expression, society, et cetera, that are um, uh, embodying and concretizing this new integral structure with all of its characteristics. And, and that's difficult. But as integral scholars, that's what's exciting for us. And that's what I always say. Like, it's cool that we're looking at this because we have to play the role of cultural philosopher in that sense of, of all right, what are the, the characteristics of this emergent consciousness and how is it different than the mental? Um, what, are, what does philosophy look like in the integral? Uh, Gebser says it's, it's less abstract and it's more kind of being the knowledge. What does that look like? He called it, he, he put a word for it, verition. But what does that really look like for us? Um, Nora Bateson is always talking about how Again, you know, the, the, the systems of thinking with subject and object and sort of Kantian philosophy, that, that kind of history of Western thought um, is no longer useful for thinking in terms of ecology and systems. So she says, how do we study a thing when it's still alive and not killed and dissected? And she call, she's calling it warm data, right? Mm. So there's kind of a processual, there's an introduction of time to things, allowing things to just be rather than freezing them, dissecting them, cutting them apart, which the mental is great at and wonderful at and building things, you know? So I, uh, I mean, another... two cheers for that. <laughs> sure. You know? I mean, yeah. I mean, how do our systems of knowledge and our epistemologies reflect the new integral? And that, that's yeah. my question. Always yeah. let's cycle back to that. Um, because I think it's very easy for us right now to fall back into the mental. It's very easy to kind of go, okay, let's go back to big picture thinking um, and, and kind of have add a, add a few caveats to it, but but not really do the difficult work of like, well, how do we express a, a wholeness without the mental totality, the, the the mental stasis and arrest? That's so. That's a big question. Well, not I don't not without it, but including it uh, yeah, how, without how it, it being the only thing. Right. How how yeah. is it no longer the exclusive locus of yes. how we think? Yeah. Um, that's a difficult question. And some people go back to the mythic. Let's go back to big cosmic <laughs> seasons and cycles. And, you know, there's been a lot of attempts to address this. And I yeah. think what we see in, in, in integral and metamodernism is another, another whole thing. Uh, a lot of attempts right now are kind of these um, um, intermingling of the perspectival and the aperspectival, the mental and the integral, as we try to refine and clarify what is actually emerging. Yeah. Right. right um, and so, one other example I would give is, is uh, just because I saw this recently, um, it, it's, it's called Abstract the Art of Design. It's a Netflix show. Um, and it features a, uh, an episode by Neri Oxman, 
and she's an MIT engineer. And I think what she's doing um, in her lab is, is a good expression of what the future might look like. And her whole idea is to grow things and to move away from the industrial factory model and to grow buildings and sometimes cooperate with non-human organisms to help us grow, <laughs> Great. To grow the ceiling, right? Or to grow, to, to, so nature and, and culture, so technology and, and the non-human world almost are identical to each other, that you won't be able to tell the difference. And so for me, my exercise, my thought exercise, I tell people is like, can you imagine an environment with people in it that at first glance, doesn't look like uh, a, a, a civilized area that looks like a wild area. Like, what does that look like when nature and culture are no longer have that boundary anymore, where that subject-object duality has been superseded, not undone, but superseded? Um, and those are the kinds of thinkings that we have to look at in arts, sciences, and philosophy, in epistemology. Uh, all the different fields, the whole array of, of human knowledge production and, and practices. Um, yeah. yeah, so How I don't know that. I'm, I'm very excited about it. I, I tend to get very um, enthusiastic. Um, yeah, I see that. Knowing the dangers, knowing yeah. the difficulties right now. But yeah, well, I just so appreciate you bringing it forth, man, you know, and coalescing your people and doing your work. And I um, really encourage people to check it out. And they can do so at um, neurolearning.com. That's right. Spell the neuro part. It's N-U-R-A and then learning, as in just, you know, learning something, learning.com. And it's it, the banner is right on the homepage, so you can check it yeah, out. Yeah, and I'll put a link in the description. Mm-hmm. Um, and also... Uh, they can support you with a Patreon. That's right. Patronage, right? Yeah, exactly, Jeff, uh, a fellow um, patron. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, yes. So, yeah, you can you can support me on Patreon, and that is a little bit more uh, of a way to access and talk with me. Uh, we have, like, a little chat room channel and a private forum, and I send uh, little missives uh, every month, and and we do also do salon calls where we talk about some of these things, um, especially the whole like how is it manifesting in culture right now? Like we're always kind of cycling it back to that, and we've got a right great on. core group. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. People. Well, we did we did some book clubs, um, and we did a movie club over the over the summer. We looked at like integral in in cinema, um, and so that was really fun, and. Uh, the, the the insights everyone kind of brings generatively when they're working with integral philosophy, just wonderful, like things I wouldn't have even thought of. They're just kind of picking up on these little subtleties. Um, and art is just such a great way to energize people and, and make them remember what, they, what they've developed in terms of an insight. Um, but we, we're also planning on reading some philosophy this year. So we're going to read, read some uh, Luno, uh, Bruno Latour. Um, we're going to read some Tim Morton, probably a little bit more um, eco-philosophy. But uh, we stick mainly to yeah. literature. God bless you. Yeah, mm-hmm. fantastic. And the name of the course, again, is? It's called Seeing Through the World, um, Integral Consciousness, and the Ever-Present Origin. And uh, it's nine sessions. It starts on Sunday, February 23rd. And I think... And I want to point out that you can jump on after the 23rd and still be part of it. And uh, Jeremy's charging 150 bucks, which is, I think, very reasonable. I get nothing. I'm promoting this because I 
think you ought to know about it. And uh, so check it out. A lot of folks, Jeff, actually have to thank you too for the other year when we did our podcast. Um, a lot of folks were just curious, like, well, I'm from integral theory, but I, I was really interested in what you were talking about. So um, a lot of integral theory folks have really enjoyed this class. It's, just, it's, it's, it's really fun to kind of get into all of these um, artistic historical examples, and it kind of just brings everything to life. That was one of the things they often said. It brings things to life in yeah. a way. Um, it hadn't before. It just kind of jumps off the page. So oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining me for the Daily Evolver. And thank you, Jeremy Johnson, for joining me. And I really great seeing you and good luck with the course and with your work. And we'll stay tuned. Thanks, Jeff, so much. It was a pleasure. All right. 